Well, good morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name's Sarah. I'm a member of the church staff here. Tim, for uh, the last couple of weeks, um, has been talking on the book of Ruth, and he's looked at chapter one and chapter two, and Tim has talked about the fact that the book of Ruth is a really fantastic book, which is also, uh, acts like a mirror in our own lives, a mirror that we can hold up and that we can see circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in being reflected throughout this book. Tim's also talked about the fact that this is like a window, a window of us looking through and seeing how God is at work in the midst of those circumstances. So as we um, look at chapter three today, hopefully we again will look at some of the situations that we might find ourselves facing and see actually what it is that God wants to be saying to us. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I read the whole book of Ruth, I really want to go back to the Naomi in chapter one and say to her, Naomi, do you know what? It's okay because chapter four is coming. Because if you remember in chapter one, Naomi has lost her husband. She has lost her son. She's in a town away from her own people, fairly isolated, pretty hopeless situation. But yet by the end of chapter four, that situation has been redeemed. And so often in circumstances and in situations in our own lives, we wish we could go back, don't we, and say, do you know what? It's going to be okay. And that doesn't take away from the suffering. It doesn't take away from the pain that actually happened in chapter one for Naomi. But it does give her the hope of saying, but chapter four is coming. And I'm sure for each of us, there are many situations that we can think of in our own lives or those around us where we think, oh, if only we could read on to chapter four and we knew what it was going to be saying to us. But this morning, we're not going to be reading on to chapter four. That's going to be next week. Uh, So that's something to look forward to. Today, we're going to be looking at chapter three. Now, chapters one and two, chapters one very much is the kind of Naomi and Ruth in this metaphorical darkness, these dire circumstances and situation. Um, Naomi says to her two daughter-in-laws you know you don't have to stay with me I'm going back to my people in Bethlehem in my hopeless situation but there is hope for you why don't you stay in Moab you could still get married you could still go on and you could have a future one of her daughters-in-law says okay bye-bye and leaves the other one says do you know what I'm going to come with you you know your people will be my people your God will be my God And Ruth follows Naomi back to Bethlehem, a massive sacrifice for Ruth of leaving her own people to say, I'm going to stay with my mother-in-law, even though I can't see what the future looks like, I'm going to stay with her, I'm going to go. So they go back to Bethlehem and in chapter two, we see a little glimmer of hope arriving that as Ruth goes out to try and provide in some way for these two women who had no food, who had no provision, she goes and finds Boaz's fields and Boaz says to her, do you know what, I will look after you. You can come and you can gather food in my fields and I will keep you protected. So the hope that begins in chapter 2. So uh, then we read on to chapter 3. Now chapter 3 is the part of the book where if you were reading it with your parents, watch as a film, you're watching this as a film with your parents or with your children, you might start to feel slightly uncomfortable because it's that scene in the film where it all gets a little bit um, uncomfortable depending on who you're watching it with. So this is the moment where Naomi comes up with a plan to provide something for Ruth and for her, where she says, do you know what, let's go and be proactive about this. Let's try and do something which will give us hope and provision in our circumstances. So the plan that she comes up with, as Andy has already read for us, uh, is when Naomi says to Ruth, is not Boaz with whose women you have been a kingsman of ours? Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself, put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. 
Now, readers of the day would have known and recognised that the threshing floor was a place associated with fertility rituals. So right away, this is a part of the story where people would have seen a few little sexual undertones were happening in this part of the story. And you can read huge amounts of commentaries which talk about whether or not it was actually um, Boaz's feet that Ruth was lying next to. But we're not going to look about that this morning because actually that can be quite a distraction from what it is that I think God really wants to pull out in this story and what messages, what window he wants to give to us in the circumstances that we find ourselves in. So the first point that we're going to look at this morning is that as we read this chapter, as we read the book of Ruth, we can see that when we put others first above our own needs, God is at work. Tim, a couple of weeks ago, uh, before the all-age service last week, talked about the fact that serving God can have a massive effect and impact upon the people around us. And here in chapter 3, we see the three main characters in this story, in this book, having actions of an unbelievable sacrificial servant heart, which put the needs of others above their own to radically change the circumstances around them and radically change the future of things that will happen um, yet to come. So we look at Naomi, and in in verse 1 of chapter 3, Naomi says to Ruth, My daughter, should I not try and find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Now, the cynics among us might say, well, of course Naomi's going to say that. She wants to come up with this amazing grand plan because if she comes up with this amazing grand plan to provide for Ruth, then actually that's going to in turn mean provision for her. But the beautifulness of the Hebrew translation where she says, my daughter, should I not try and find a home for you, is the same translation which basically is talking about rest, finding a place of rest in home, that Naomi says to Ruth in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, verse 9, Naomi says to Ruth, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So right at the beginning of the book, in the circumstances where Naomi had lost her husband, she'd lost her sons, she was at a point where she released Ruth and said to her, I want you to find a home. I want you to find rest with someone else. You don't have to stay with me. You don't have to follow me. And here in chapter three, Naomi is essentially saying the same thing. I want to find that place of rest for you. I want to find that home for you. Now, Naomi in chapter one was in a place of real darkness, of real dark circumstances. And yet in that moment, she still put the needs of Ruth above her own. Because probably she would have loved to have said, you know, Ruth, come with me. I don't want to go back on my own. I want someone to come with me. But she released Ruth. And here again, there's that beautiful moment of Naomi's circumstances and her outlook beginning to change. At the end of chapter one, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. It means bitter. My life is bitter. And yet here at the beginning of chapter three, as we see this hope beginning to come into their lives, Naomi is able to say, I want to find a home for you. I want to put your needs above mine and I want to help you in your circumstances. We look at the character of Ruth, who throughout the whole of this book demonstrates nothing but a beautiful servant heart, putting the needs of others continually above the needs of her own. She leaves her people behind. She leaves her home behind to say, I'm going to follow you, Naomi. I'm going to let your God be my God and your people be my people. 
So she hears Naomi's plan that she's to go down to the threshing room floor, that she's to do these actions, that she's to um, basically say to Boaz, here I am, I will be your servant. Now, I don't know about anyone else here, but if my mother-in-law had presented this to me, I probably might have had a few questions. You know, this was quite a risky thing, saying to a single woman, right, why didn't you go down to this place that's, you know, a little bit kind of related to fertility rituals, go and lie down at the feet of this man or wherever she happened to be lying and do all these things. But Ruth, rather than saying, what are you talking about, Naomi? This is unbelievably ridiculous. Or just asking some questions of, are you sure? Isn't this going to be a bit funny? Or do you think it's going to work out? We look at Naomi's answer in verse five, Ruth's answer in verse 5, where she says, I will do whatever you say. There's no questioning. There's no concern. It's just that moment of saying, do you know what? I trust you, Naomi. I have followed you. I have given up my home for you. And again, I will keep trusting you and I will believe that this plan is a plan that you know has come from God and I will trust you and I will do whatever you say. Again, reading on to verse 9, as Boaz wakes up and finds Ruth by his feet, obviously slightly startled in the circumstances, he says, who are you? Now, probably if that was me in that moment, I would have been a little bit apologetic. I'm really sorry, I'm the girl who was in the field and I didn't know what to do and my mother-in-law said this and I felt like I had to follow her and do what she said. But rather than all of that, Ruth simply says, I am your servant, Ruth. I'm your servant. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to do whatever it is that you would ask me to do. That beautiful servant heart in Ruth of saying, I want to serve those around me. I want to put the needs of others first because I know that God has a plan for me in all of this. And then we look on to the character of Boaz, who really is kind of in chapter three, begins to shine and then shines even brightlier, uh, brighter in chapter four as we're here next week. <laughs> so the custom was that um, if a brother died and, his, and he had a surviving brother, the surviving brother would marry his deceased brother's wife. And then any children that they had together would essentially inherit the land of the deceased brother. So it would be seen as the child of the deceased brother. And this is essentially what is being asked of Boaz in this moment, is will he take on board the role of the brother of the deceased brother? But the thing that we need to remember in this story is that Boaz wasn't the brother of Ruth's dead husband. He was in some way related to Naomi's husband. And it, it also so fantastic to remember that Ruth wasn't even one of um, Boaz's people. She didn't come from Bethlehem. She was a Moabite. She came from somewhere else. She wasn't part of the community that he lived in. And yet again, Boaz shows a beautiful answer in verse 11 where he says, I will do for you all that you ask. You know, he could have said, I'm so sorry. Uh, you know, I want to be there. I want to help you. You can continue working in my field. But I'm not the role that you want me to be. I'm not that person. You're not from Bethlehem. You're not one of my people. But that isn't how Boaz reacts. And we'll see a little bit later on, again, that the amazing uh, truth that then Boaz goes on to actually kind of give up the right by saying there is someone else closer who could take on board that role, even though obviously this is something he would love to do. You know, he says how fantastic it is that Ruth has come to him above the younger men. He's obviously very flattered by what has happened here. And looking at the actions of Boaz, I think are particularly relevant in the society that we live in now, where we see so many displaced people groups coming into our communities who aren't part of our natural community, but are coming here because they are fleeing from terrible circumstances and situations. 
And how wonderful if we could be the character of Boaz, who says, do you know what? You are not my people group, but I welcome you as my people group. And we will welcome you and we will serve you and we will do for you the things that you need us to do. There are so many wonderful examples as well throughout uh, history where we can see God massively at work when the needs of others have been put first. I'm sure many of you have seen the film um, Schindler's List, a beautiful story of Oscar Schindler, who was a member of the Nazi party and yet felt that he needed to save the Jews. He saw this awful atrocities happening around him in the Second World War and by gathering the Jews, some Jews community to work in his factory, it's reckoned that he saved about 1,200 Jews. Now, if any of you have seen the film, there's a very beautiful moving bit right at the end where it cuts away from the fictional film and goes into a kind of non-fictional moment where there's a shot of Oscar Schindler's grave and they have um, relatives of the surviving Jews who he saved coming and laying stones on his grave. This amazing legacy left by a man who by saving 1,200 people has gone on for thousands and thousands more to continue living through that legacy. A beautiful example of maybe even without him realising God massively at work by someone putting the needs of others first. Many of you might know um, Sandra Walton. Sandra Walton used to be a member of um, the Mosley congregation at Riverside many years ago before she uh, left Birmingham. Sandra was a head teacher and she was asked to come and take on board the headship of a school, very local to here, a primary school, that was seen as a failing school. It was a school that no one wanted to go to. It was a school that was seen as a place that was pretty hopeless. The turnaround of staff was massive. No one wanted to stay there. Morale was low. Results were low. And Sandra was asked to come in and to turn this school around. So she did and with a beautiful heart, the school became a flourishing school. Uh, Sandra was awarded a Pride of Britain Award. And I remember watching, as I'm sure many of us who knew Sandra did on that evening, feeling unbelievably jealous that she was meeting Take That and Simon Cow. But the most beautiful moment of that evening wasn't hearing all the fantastic things that Sandra did. It wasn't when they presented her with this minibus and other fantastic things for the school. The most beautiful part of the evening was when they, as a surprise for Sandra, brought on loads of the children from the school. And as the children from the school came running onto the stage, the joy and the delight on Sandra's face was amazing and was probably one of the most beautiful moments in that evening. Because for Sandra, it wasn't about turning around a school so she could get the accolade. It was about saying, I love these children and they deserve the best. And I want to serve them and I want to support them and I want to put their needs above her needs of going into a school that was a failing school. That school has now continued to flourish and has just had its best offset result yet. So a legacy left by Sandra going in and leaving something of God's love in that place. You know, uh, on Tuesday this week, Myself and my family moved house, and for any of you who have done that, particularly with three small children, you know it's quite stressful. We've got some friends who had moved house uh, four days earlier, who on the day we moved house, came to our house, and rather than unpacking their own boxes, spent the afternoon unpacking our boxes and putting up things and helping us. And that, for me, demonstrated just a beautiful sacrificial servant heart of them saying, do you know what, we've got our own boxes to unpack, we've got our own family, but right now in this moment, we want to come along and we want to help you. And it made a massive difference to me and John in the midst of a fairly stressful day. But we managed not to row, so that was quite positive. So, uh, thinking then, point one, that as we put the needs of others above our own, God is at work. For Ruth, for Naomi, for Boaz, as they did that, they together worked towards leaving an amazing legacy which led up to the lineage of Jesus being born. And again, we'll look at that a little bit um, next week. 
a beautiful legacy that they left. So the second point, in the middle of the darkness, God is at work. You know, this book opens with Naomi and Ruth in the midst of metaphorical darkness. Uh, They were in a hopeless situation that parallels so many of the circumstances we see time and time again in the news at the moment, where they had lost loved ones, where they were found in a hopeless situation, where they were displaced, displaced from their home. They were in a real time of metaphorical darkness that seemed hopeless, that seemed like there was no uh, light at all going to be shining. So now in chapter three, we've moved on away from the metaphorical darkness. There is hope beginning to shine in the character of Boaz and in this plan that Naomi has come up with. But here we find ourselves in the midst of the physical darkness. Oh, look, someone's already done it for me. Thank you. People at the back are slightly more on it than me. Um, So here in this moment... Ruth and Naomi are in the middle of the night. It says that, verse 8, in the middle of the night, something startled the man. This is the physical darkness. And this, I think, is a beautiful picture of God saying, I want to remind you that in the midst of the darkness, be it physical, be it metaphorical, I am at work. Leading up to this point in the Old Testament, there were also some other middle-of-the-night stories where we see God's redemption and we see God's hope at work. You know, in Genesis, it talks about in the middle of the night, Jacob got up, took his two sons, his two female servants and his, and his, uh, and his two wives. And then later on, it says, a few verses later, God says to Jacob, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with both God and human beings and have overcome In the middle of the night, Jacob got redemption from God. In Exodus, it says, In the middle of the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go and worship the Lord of you have requested. In the middle of the night, in the middle of the darkness, finally Moses and the Israelites were given the permission to leave. And all these stories of God at work in the middle of the darkness in the dark places where actually people probably weren't even aware of the fact that God was at work. And time and time again, in in darkness and dark circumstances we can find ourselves in, we're probably not even aware that God is at work. You know, there's another verse, a beautiful verse, where Jacob um, in the book of Genesis says, surely God was in this place and I wasn't even aware of it. And this is an amazing truth that we can hold on to when we find ourselves in the midst of dark circumstances. Because when we see stories on the news of darkness and dark events happening, it's also moments that we can see stories of unbelievable hope. Stories of people sacrificing their lives for those of the ones that they love. Stories of community groups, people groups, coming together in a way they never have before. Coming out to say, we're going to stand united, we're going to be together displaced people groups being welcomed. There was a beautiful story on the news of some of the refugees arriving in Germany. And just the welcome that they were received was beautiful, so beautiful to watch. Banners and cheering, fantastic things on the news. Uh, When I um, worked in New York a couple of years ago following the 9-11 attacks, we went out uh, three months after, I went with Agapea, another Christian organisation, we went out three months after the 9-11 terrorist attacks had happened and we were working with people who had been affected by these attacks and uh, there was a lady who was working with us, we didn't really know who she was, Uh, she was an American lady and she came and worked with our team and every day she was out on the street, she was meeting young people who had lost relatives um, as a result of what had happened, she was giving them Bibles, she was praying with them, she was talking to them and I just remember saying to her you know what's your story who who are you we found out that she had lost her husband and her son in those attacks she was a modern day Naomi 
And we said to her, how are you doing this? It's three months on since you walked through those tragic circumstances. And she said to us, in the midst of the biggest moment of darkness in my life, I realised that if God wasn't in that, then I had nothing. And she said, as I realised that God must be with it and with me, I know that I have to spend the rest of my life making sure that other people know that God is in the midst of their darkness with them. And it might be that right now you are in chapter one, that you are in that metaphorical darkness and you are struggling and you are finding it really hard. But the hope that God would say to you is surely God is in this place, even if you don't even know it. And the amazing truth is, even if this side of heaven, you feel like you continue to stay in that metaphorical darkness, we have a beautiful truth ahead of us, which is that we're going to go to heaven to be with Jesus forever. And that one day that darkness will cease to exist. And that's something that each of us can hold on to. So the final point, just really quickly. Uh, So God is at work as we put others before our own needs. God is at work in the darkness and God is at work in the midst of our waiting. So this is a great book. I love the story of Ruth because it's all about people being really proactive. It's not about people just sitting around going, oh, please let these amazing circumstances happen for me. It's about people saying, no, come on, we're going to be proactive. We're going to proactively go back to Bethlehem. We're going to proactively go out and glean in the fields. We're going to proactively come up with a plan that says we're going to go and see, say to Boaz, do you want to come and help us? Do you want to marry Ruth? Amazing proactivity of people saying, I recognise this opportunity is a God-given opportunity and I'm going to grasp it and I'm going to go for it. So it's slightly frustrating that when we get to chapter three, rather than it all being wrapped up, which would be great, it'd be great if it ended on chapter three, that, you know, Ruth goes to Boaz, Boaz says, yes, of course, I'll marry you. Great, fantastic, that would be brilliant. We could end it there. But the final verse of chapter three slightly frustratingly says, then Naomi said, wait my daughter until you find out what happens. That actually we don't find out what happens at the end of chapter three because God says, wait. The answer isn't going to happen today, even though you'd like the answer to happen today. Because suddenly out of nowhere, this other character is introduced of someone who Boaz says is actually a closer kingsman redeemer, someone who is a closer relative, who actually we need to go to him first and see whether he wants to marry Ruth um, because he actually has greater claim than Boaz does. Really frustrating because we're like, come on, God, we'd like to know the answer now. We want to find out what happens. And Boaz is acting with complete integrity, complete integrity in doing this. Because he's saying, no, hang on, as much as I'd love to do this, there is someone else who has the right first. But actually, in the midst of our waiting, however frustrating those times can be, God is massively at work. Because we have to learn that in our waiting, we can trust him that chapter four is coming, that the answer is coming, that God is there in the midst of our waiting, just as much as he in the midst of our darkness, just as he is in the much in the midst of our celebration times. I have a really good friend um, who I spent some time with um, the other month and they are in a time of real waiting in their lives. It's very painful, a painful time of waiting. And as we were chatting, they said to me one of the most incredible things where they said, do you know what? In all honesty, I don't know if I would change what is going through my life at the moment. I don't know if I would change this time of waiting. I was left slightly speechless because if I was in their shoes, I definitely don't know if I would be able to say the same thing. So we talked about it a bit more and I said, you know, why is it that you feel that you can say that? And they said, because what I have learned about God and what I have learned about God's character and how I have learned to trust God would never, ever have happened if this 
time of waiting hadn't have happened in my life. And actually, when I spend time with this person, I can see an amazing relationship with God that in a really good, godly way, I feel jealous of. Not jealous in a bad way, but jealous because I look at it and I think, I want to have that. Because what they know about God and what they have learned about God's character is incredible. That even in the midst of the waiting and not knowing the answers, they can hand on heart say, but God is still here. And God has the answers. You know, we live in a culture where we want things straight away. You know, if you see all the adverts around at Christmas at the moment, Amazon and Argus seem to be doing this kind of like little crazy war thing about how quickly they can get something to your house when you first order it. And I'm sure probably very soon we're going to press a button and in 30 seconds someone will be on our doorstep. You know, we had some babysitters last night and we sent them home in an Uber taxi. Now, in my head, when you call for a taxi, you wait for like, you know, half an hour, then they don't turn up. You ring them. They say, oh, yeah, we're just around the corner. You wait for another half an hour. We ordered our Uber taxi within three minutes from ordering it, it had arrived. It was amazing. I was like, this is fantastic. We live in a culture where we want things instantaneously. But sometimes God says, it's okay to wait. Because as you wait, you have to rely on me in a whole new way that maybe you haven't had to rely on me before. So just as we close, let's use chapter three as a chapter that we can see that window of God speaking into the circumstances that we might find ourselves in. That as we hold up a mirror to our own lives and we say, are we at a time where we need to know more of having that sacrificial servant heart, of putting others' needs above our own? Are we in a time where we hold up a mirror to our lives and we say, I'm in the midst of darkness and I need to know that God is in this place even though I can't feel it? Are we in a time of waiting where we might feel frustrated, where we might want to know all of the answers, but God says, just wait and trust me because I know more than you could ever imagine. And I'm going to hand back over to Emma and the band now. And as we move into a time of worship and then into a time of communion, it might want to be that you might just want to take one of those three points and think about the one that really most applies to you right now and use it to reflect upon that as we take communion and reflect upon God in each of those circumstances and know that just as he was there for Ruth, for Boaz and Naomi, he is there for you. And know that as we look with expectation to chapter four next week, there is an amazing answer and there is an amazing lineage that leads up until the birth of Jesus coming. So I'm just going to hand over to Emma and the rest of the band. <laughs>